Dan mentioned that the recordings will sound better. I feel like I should clarify. That means the quality of the sound, not necessarily (laughs) the sermon. We do appreciate your patience as we work through some of the quirks of getting new equipment. Let's pray together. Father, what a joy to gather as your people together and sing and to pray and to hear your word read and to hear your word taught and explained. Father, may you be pleased and glorified. May Jesus Christ be lifted high. May we be busy about the work of casting out the nets of the gospel that we might see others come to know Christ through faith. Lord, strengthen us, equip us as a church and as individuals to live life unto your glory and in faithful pursuit of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We're in Luke 5 this morning. Luke chapter 5. Several years ago when I was a youth pastor, we were at a week-long camp with high school students. And part of this camp meant that in the morning and in the evening, there were these worship services. And towards the end of the week, we were in one of these evening worship services, and one of the speakers decided to do, you know, one of those bow your heads, close your eyes sorts of invitations. And I was absolutely exhausted. This is my second week of camp, and, uh, and I committed the unforgivable sin. I fell asleep during the invitation. And when I regained consciousness, all I heard was, stand to your feet. So like a good boy, I stand up with my head bowed and my eyes closed. And, and you know, you just feel something's off. So I start to kind of look around, and I see that I'm one of only about three or four in the whole room that are standing. And that's when I realized the pastor had said, if you need to be saved, stand to your feet. And so when we got home, somebody asked Jeremy, one of the counselors, how was camp? He said, it was great. Our youth pastor got saved. (laughs) Well, this morning we're in Luke 5, and it instructs us in the proper way to respond to Jesus. Not accidentally standing up at the right time at, at camp, but recognizing our own sinfulness and falling before Christ and joining in his mission to proclaim the gospel and leaving everything to pursue Jesus. You see, I think Luke has intentionally set up this contrast as we, as we march through the book of Luke. He intentionally contrasts those who oppose Jesus with those who faithfully follow Jesus. We've seen the wrong way. We've seen those at Nazareth who did not honor Christ, even though he stood up in the synagogue and he told them that I am the Son of God. I am the servant in Isaiah 61. And they rejected him. And they sought to kill him. And today we see the only proper way to respond to Jesus We see then that the proper response leads to a a new mission to proclaim Christ as we follow him in discipleship. So we'll start then in the first three verses of chapter 5. Jesus is again found teaching. We've said over and over that Luke loves to highlight the teaching ministry of Jesus. But the point of our passage this morning, unlike uh, the passage we looked at last week and the week before, The point is not 
the exact message that Jesus is preaching. The point of this text is his, his sort of intersection with Simon Peter, his interaction with Simon. And so the first few verses set the stage for this interaction. Let's read it. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So in the first three verses, we have Luke just kind of laying the groundwork, setting the stage for what's about to happen. The text opens in verse 1 with the crowd pressing in on Jesus. We saw that after Jesus was teaching authoritatively and he was casting out demons and he was healing people, that the word about him began to spread like wildfire. His fame and, and those who were interested in Jesus began to grow. And again, in the book of Luke, in large part due to his teaching, he teaches, remember, as one with authority. So the crowd wants to hear the teaching of Jesus. They want to hear the message of God. And so the crowd is pressing in on Jesus, and they keep pressing in, and they keep pressing in until Jesus has backed himself up to the shore of the Sea of Galilee, or Lake of Gennesaret. Those are uh, synonymous terms. And so Jesus looks and he sees two boats there by the lake. These would have been not just your typical bass boat. These are fishing vessels. They were 20 to 30 feet long. And I love how God affirms his word over and over. For a long time people said, oh, this account can't be true because these aren't the type of boats that they had. Then they found one on the Sea of Galilee and they dated it. And it was 2,000 years old. And so these boats are unmanned at the, at the moment. The fishermen have sort of come in uh, after fishing all throughout the night, and they're washing their nets. And so Jesus sees an opportunity there. I can kind of get on this boat, and I can address the people, and they won't continue to press in on me. So he hops in the boat. And from our perspective, we might say it happened to be Simon's boat. Now this is Simon Peter. In, in many ways, Simon is first amongst the disciples. In all the lists and the gospels of the disciples, Simon is listed first. Peter will go on, as many of you know, to have sort of an up and down career as a disciple. In Luke 9, he's one of three disciples that are privileged to go up on the mountain and see the transfigured Christ. Peter then will later boast about his faithfulness to the Lord and that he would never forsake Jesus. And then he's one of the first in Matthew 16 to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then he's one to publicly deny Christ. And then in Acts 2, you see Peter stand up and preach and 3,000 in one day come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. But he's not done. In Galatians 2, Paul confronts Peter for being afraid to be seen in public with the Gentiles, though the Gentiles have been welcomed into the community of faith through Christ. So like us, Peter is inconsistent in his pursuit of Jesus. But if we're given a quick bio of Peter, he ends well, proclaiming the gospel, 
preaching Christ until history tells us he gave his very life for that message. So are we supposed to then see this as some kind of a chance encounter? Are we supposed to see this as a coincidence? If Jesus hopped into a different boat, would that man have become the most famous, one of the most famous disciples and apostles? Of course not. Of course not. Jesus has an appointment with Peter. He has intentionally set this moment where he is going to have this interaction. And so by now, Peter gets in the boat, and Jesus tells him, why don't you push out a little from the land so that I can teach the people without them continually pressing in on me, and I move further and further back. And so now, in the boat, pushed away from the land, Jesus is in a position to teach. He sits down. He teaches the crowd. Remember, this was the mission for which Jesus was sent. He said, I've come to proclaim good news to the poor. He was sent by the Father, Jesus said, to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God. And he does this from Simon's boat to the crowd. I was reading one old commentary from the 1800s, and the author said this, Christ uses Peter's boat as a pulpit, wants to throw the net of the gospel over his hearers. Jesus pursues the fulfillment of his mission to preach the good news of the gospel, of the kingdom of God, to proclaim the forgiveness of sins, to proclaim that this is the year of salvation. Salvation has come in and through Jesus Christ. But today, again, Luke's focus today in Luke chapter 5, he sets his eyes on Simon. And so he sets out to reveal to Simon who exactly this man is who is in his boat. And that brings us to the miracle in verses 4 through 7. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your, your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. Having taught the crowd, Jesus tells Simon to to push out a little further for the catch. And at first, we might think that this is some kind of just friendly fishing advice among equals. But we need to remember that Simon was not a fisherman by hobby. He was a fisherman by trade. This was his business. This was his life. He was the professional fisherman. And so he's a little uncomfortable with Jesus giving him fishing instructions. I don't know if you're really good at something and you've had somebody try to tell you how to do your job. I was joking with Dan earlier about being in the dentist and me going to see Dan and saying, you know, you really shouldn't use that drill. You should use this drill. Dan's the professional. I'm not. I should probably just listen to him. Peter is the professional. Jesus, as far as he knows, the son of a carpenter. So he pushes back a little bit in verse 5. Says, Master, that's a that's a, a term of respect. Master, we toiled all night. 
the, the we there, by the way, he, this is Simon and Jesus, he says, we toiled all night, is, is most likely Simon, Peter, Andrew, his brother, and James and John, which we'll see here in a moment, are his partners. They had fished all night and they had caught nothing. We've been, we've been toiling. It's, we've been laboring. You know, again, this isn't some kind of hobby where you're just sitting on your pontoon boat and casting out and seeing if you can. This is work all through the night, hauling in fish and these heavy nets. We've been toiling all night and we've caught nothing. You see, the fishermen would go out at night. It was more effective for them to drag these nets deep beneath the surface. And so the fishermen would typically fish all night. And they would come in in the morning and they would wash their nets and fix any nets that were broken. So Peter is saying, if we didn't catch anything last night, we sure aren't going to catch anything today, Jesus. It just isn't going to happen. And so Luke, the author, he's helping set this up, that this is a true miracle of God. He's letting us know that what is about to happen would not happen. It's not a stroke of good luck. And so Peter gives a sort of respectful pushback that, man, Jesus, we've been doing this all night, and we're kind of good at what we do. But we see in the way that Simon addresses Jesus that it's sort of a respectful pushback. He calls him master. Again, this is a title of respect. The disciples use it often. And then another way that we see that Simon actually is respectfully pushing back is he does eventually do what Jesus asks. He actually obeys. Um, you know, assuming Luke 4 and 5 are chronological, Je- Peter has seen Jesus do some pretty miraculous stuff. His very mother-in-law was healed last week. So if the son of the carpenter can heal the sick, perhaps the son of a carpenter can catch fish during the day. And so in the end, he demonstrates a sort of trust and a sort of reliance on Jesus, and they cast their nets over, and it is met with immediate, miraculous success. Though Simon is reluctant at first, his obedience results in this enormous catch of fish. In fact, I don't know if you've been here, but things are so good, they're about to go bad. Things are so good, they start to go bad. They have so many fish in the net that their equipment can't handle it. The ropes that, that, that make up the nets are beginning to fray. They're beginning to break. We see here, again, Luke has set us up to know that this is true. Jesus is displaying his glory through this miracle. For one, he's demonstrating that he is the omniscient one, the all-knowing one, who is aware that if a sparrow falls from the sky, he knows it because he knows his creation. But I think it's more than that. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of debate. Well, this, is this a miracle because Jesus knows where the fish are? Or is this a miracle because Jesus tells the fish where to be? And I say that, yes. Jesus knows where the fish are because he tells the fish where to go. He is the sustainer of all creation. And as the one who has authority over all creation, he ensures that the fish are right where he wants them. To demonstrate to Simon and and the others, James and John specifically, who he is. There is such a thing as beginner's luck in fishing. But this isn't it. 
This is clearly and obviously a miracle by the immediacy of the catch and by the size of the catch. And so you feel this sort of tension building that they've got this huge catch and and the ropes are beginning to fray. It's like the scene in the movie where the hero's hanging from a rope and you see one strand at a time just bursting, bursting, bursting. The the nets are breaking and they think they've got a a solution. They, They call to their partner, their partners, James and John, come and help. The boat gets over there just in time before the nets absolutely burst. That's sort of like a a little tease, because just as soon as they think they've solved the problem, there's so many fish in the net that the boats begin to sink. These are big boats, like we said earlier, 20, 30-foot vessels. Yet Jesus has acted in such a way that there is such an abundance of fish that the boats begin to fail. Now, we see Simon's response to the miracle. You see, the purpose was not the fish. The purpose was to demonstrate who Jesus is. The purpose was for Simon to get a glimpse of the glory of Christ. The end goal, as we'll see, was worship. The end goal was mission. The end goal was discipleship. We see that in Simon's response, and this is where we're going to Spend the majority of our time here in verses 8 through 11. So as we said earlier, Luke has been setting up this contrast for quite some time. In fact, we were warned all the way back in chapter 1 from Simeon as he was holding Jesus. Behold, the child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that will be opposed. We've seen the opposition to Jesus. Now we get to see the proper response. Look in verses 8 through 11. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. The last word we heard about the boats was that they were sinking. So as far as we know, the boats are still struggling to stay afloat. But Peter, at this point, after what he's seen, after what he's witnessing, he isn't concerned about that. He has seen something greater than the miracle. He almost seems oblivious to the investment that he has made over presumably years in his fishing industry. He has seen something infinitely more important, infinitely more valuable. He recognizes that he is in the presence of the Holy Christ. He falls down at Jesus' knees. This is the same reaction that Simon and James and John have on the Mount of Transfiguration. They, they fall down flat on their face when they see the unveiled glory of Christ. And it's in Peter's response then that I think we see four ways we are meant to respond to Christ. And the first thing we see is humility. 
We see it in the fact that he falls. We see it in the fact that he, he, he recognizes in his confession that he is unworthy to be in the presence of Christ. He confesses. Depart from me. Simon has a sense that he's in the presence of God and he understands that God is holy and therefore he is unworthy to be there. He's unworthy to be on the same boat. So he tells Jesus, you, you've got to leave. Depart from me. If Jesus were sarcastic like I am, he'd probably say, yeah, Peter, I left heaven to come down here and I'll run away from you. But he's not. You know, we saw last week the tender compassion of Jesus as he exercised his authority in ways that delivered and saved. And now we see than the absolute holiness and the transcendence of Jesus, as Peter recognizes, he cannot be in the presence of Christ. Peter recognizes his unworthiness, he's humbled before Christ, and he gives, specifically for us, the reason, depart from me, for, this is the reason, for, or we might say, because I am a sinful man. You see, Peter's problem here, it demonstrates that, that, that his issue goes way beyond the fact that, that Jesus can control the fish, and Jesus can speak with authority, and Jesus can control disease. It goes way beyond the fact that Jesus is creator, and I am creation. He's unworthy for an additional reason than the fact that Peter is simply a, a created being, a man. I, don't, I wonder if you've been visiting for a while and, and, and ask yourself, why all the talk about being unworthy? Aren't we focusing too much on the negative? Well, the reality is it wasn't just Peter's status as a created man that made him unworthy. It is his sin that made him unworthy. Think about it. In Genesis 1 and 2, you have Adam and Eve who are created, yet they enjoyed fellowship and intimacy with God as he strolled about the garden and interacted with Adam and Eve. What was it that brought in the separation between God and man? It was sin. Sin disrupted this relationship. Sin broke down the, the, the fellowship between God and man. When Adam and Eve rebelled against the one prohibition that they'd been given, they sought to hide themselves from God's presence. We can't be in the presence of God. We must hide. They tried to depart from God's presence. It was their sin that disqualified them and made them unworthy to be with God. You see, because God is separate from creation. He's transcendent over creation. Because he is completely pure, he is the very definition of perfection. He is perfectly just. He is, as Isaiah declares, holy, holy, holy. In 1 Samuel 6, 20, it asks, Who is able to stand before the Lord, the holy, this holy God? See, Adam and Eve knew it. Israel knew it in 1 Samuel, and, and Peter knows it. Simon knows it. Sin and holiness cannot live in the same garden. They cannot live in the same nation. They cannot reside on the same boat. Something has to give. So Simon falls to the ground and says, Depart from me, Jesus. And I want to make clear that, that sin here is, is more than just our, our acts of sin. 
Peter's not saying, Lord, I can't be in your presence because I told a lie this morning. He's saying, this is who I am. I am a sinful man. Sin pervades my entire being, so I cannot be in the presence of holiness. See, as, as Luke, as we, we've seen it in Luke, we're going to see it over and over and over again, that there are two ways to respond to Jesus. There is to, to be pride-filled and to resist Jesus. And then there's a the response that we see here, to, to be humble and to fall before Christ. See, we've seen already, Jesus came to save the humble, the poor, the blind, the weak, the oppressed, the captive. They'll be delivered through the work of Jesus. And without denying some physical fulfillment of those promises, we pointed out that Jesus is using it also as a a spiritual picture of salvation in Christ. Jesus came to save the humble. You know, if you consider the cross of Christ, how could it be any other way when Jesus, the Holy One of God, is put to death on a cross? It is a pronouncement to us that there is no other way. There is no other way to be reconciled to God except through this horrific death on the cross. And only those who see their sin that way, only those who see their sin, this is the means The cross of Christ is the only means by which I can be forgiven, by which I can be adopted into God's family, by which I can be reconciled to God. Only those who see their sin as that grievous will fall before Christ, will fall before him, humble themselves. You see, on the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus, he deals decisively with our sin. And so we might be tempted then, If it's sin that disqualifies us from the presence of God, we might be tempted then to assume that that the answer is, I I need to clean myself up, and then I'll be qualified to follow Jesus. If sin is what disqualifies me from being in God's presence, maybe it's on me to take care of my own sin problem. But here we see in Peter... That it's not that we clean ourselves up, it's that the humble recognition, here's the prerequisite to following Jesus, the humble recognition that I am unworthy to be in the presence of God, that he has done the work, that he has accomplished salvation. We simply receive it. wonder, will you today, if you, if you have not come to Christ, confess That this is what your sin has brought. Utter alienation from God. Will you confess that Christ alone paid the penalty for your sin and come to him in faith? He will save you. It's not an inconvenience to the Lord. He delights in saving the humble. The second response we see is worship. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord, this is the first time this title is applied to Jesus here in the book of Luke. Earlier, Simon referred to Jesus as Master. That was a title of respect. Here we see in Peter's confession, the title of respect gives way to the title of sovereignty. Lord is a stronger term than Master. You know, we talked about Peter's up and down Uh, kind of career, Peter certainly has more to learn about 
Jesus. I'm not suggesting that here at chapter 5, Peter's got everything figured out. We see the disciples kind of over and over sort of wavering back and forth, and they seem to learn something, and then later on they seem to learn it anew and afresh. So I don't know, I'm certain that Peter has more to understand and more to learn about who Jesus is. But I do know this, he uses the right term for Jesus, O Lord. Oh, Lord, he recognizes that he is in the presence of holiness. He recognizes that Jesus is Lord. You see, Peter's very confession is is rooted in his understanding of the holiness of Christ. What's interesting here and in other places in Scripture, when somebody's confronted with the holiness of God, they not only see God clearly, but they see themselves clearly. Clearly, Moses was sure he would be consumed by the burning bush as he recognized he's in the presence of the Lord. The people of Israel trembled at the foot of Mount Sinai as God demonstrated his, he he manifested his presence there with lightning and thunder and fire. Ezekiel fell on his face when confronted with the glory of God. And Isaiah says, I'm undone. I'm coming apart at the seams when confronted with the holiness of God. I love the way one author put it. He says, Peter, fully aware that if he saw deity, deity saw him too. And realizing that the one who could see the depths of the lake could see the depths of his heart, he felt exposed. If we are to respond to Jesus properly, appropriately, we not only have to see Christ for who he is, we must see ourselves clearly. I was reading uh, recently a story about Francis Schaeffer, who was a theologian, pastor. He was sharing the gospel with an older man who was a committed Marxist, and when he got done sharing the gospel and the Lord had been exposing this man's heart, he said, man, how could a worm like myself receive this gospel? To which Schaefer replied, how could a worm refuse? We must see ourselves clearly in light of the holiness of God. And then we fall down before him in humble worship, recognizing that he is Lord and I am a sinful man. In fact, verses 9 and 10 kind of connect these dots for us. That it is uh, the miracle that reveals the glory of Christ that astonishes everyone that is there. It was because of the huge catch of fish that James and John were absolutely astonished. The power, the knowledge, the person of Jesus continues then, as we develop through the book of Luke, to astonish those who interact with him. They stand amazed in his presence. See, James and John, they were bystanders. They were likewise observing the scene. The text says in verse 10 that they were partners with Simon. These three then, as as the Gospels develop, Simon, James, and John form sort of an inner circle of Jesus' disciples. But Luke, however, he's not as interested in James and John right now. He wants to focus on Simon's interaction with, with Jesus. James and John are sort of astonished bystanders. So, so the action returns back to Simon. 
Simon's probably wondering, like, like Isaiah was when he was laid bare before the Lord, what happens next? I am a sinful man and I'm in the presence of holiness. I'm just going to lay down, I'm going to close my eyes, and we're going to figure out what happens next. But notice, notice Jesus' response. This is, this is amazing. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Why? Because Jesus had come to save fishermen that would fall before him and confess their sins and see him for who he is. A humble and contrite heart God will not despise. The falling, the confession revealed the humility of Peter's heart. That he was humble and broken before the Lord and therefore Jesus comforts him. Do not be afraid. It's exactly what Jesus came to accomplish. He came to reconcile the irreconcilable. Sinners can't stand with the righteous Lord. Holiness cannot be in the presence of sin. Yet Jesus came to rescue those who are sinners. Those who recognize they need to be rescued. Fishermen like Peter, tax collectors like Levi, thieves that end up on a cross for crimes they have committed, drunks and prostitutes, all saved if they recognize they need a Savior, and the Savior has come in Jesus Christ. For those who fall before Christ, for those who humble themselves and admit their need for a Savior, He comforts and assures, do not be afraid. Love casts out fear. But when Christ calls a man, calls a woman to himself, he commissions them. And we see that in the next phrase he's given to Peter here. The third response we see is mission. So he not only saves, he not only justifies, but then he commissions or he sends those out on his mission. From now on, you will be, you'll be catching Men. I love that phrase. It's easy for us to skip over. But from now on, things change from here, Peter. The call of Christ is to lay your life down. It's to lay your life down in glad service to his mission. The words here to Simon remind us that Jesus hasn't come to supplement our lives or to complement us or to help us fulfill our goals, our desires, our agenda. Jesus radically alters our agenda, calling us to give up ownership of our own lives and to, to get on board with his mission to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God, to present ourselves as living sacrifices for his glory and not for our own. The call here is to become fishers of men. You will be catching men. That's, that's people. I said in a sermon uh, in the last couple of weeks that, you know, sermon illustrations can only be pushed so far. You know, and not every detail is meant to have sort of this one-to-one correlation. And so we see that is even true in Jesus' illustration here. As I was preparing, I was reading a lot of people who were struggling with this illustration. Why in the world would he use fishers of men? You're catching fish. What do you do with the fish when you catch it? You either let it go or you eat it. Why? Well, they're, they're, they're missing the whole point because they want to press every single detail. Some said, well, I prefer the, the term shepherd. 
Well, guess what the shepherd does sometimes? Slaughters the sheep. So again, the, the illustration, I shouldn't have went there. The illustration <laughs> can get out of hand if we just want to press every detail. Well, 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 what's going on here? Jesus isn't saying catch people and eat them. I have it on good authority. That he's not, he doesn't have cannibalism in mind. It's simply saying this. Instead of gathering fish, you will gather people. Instead of casting a physical net to make your living, Peter, you are going to cast the net of the gospel. Instead of gathering to kill and to eat, you are gathering to rescue. It's amazing that, that Peter, this poor, sinful fisherman, is invited into the mission for which Jesus has come to this earth. God takes sinners and makes them servants. Poor sinners like Peter and even ourselves are redeployed into Christ's mission. And we know that Peter would go on then as a disciple and as an apostle to play a vital role not only in the ministry of Jesus, but as an apostle in the founding of the church. He is an official disciple of Jesus, an official apostle of Jesus. The apostles would spread the word of God in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the, other part, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And Ephesians 2.20 says, The church then is established on the apostles and prophets whom Christ is the chief cornerstone. And here's why I'm going there. Even though we aren't Peter, right? We don't want to read the Bible and just do like a one-for-one. One. Okay, I'm Peter. And what does this mean for me? We don't, we don't want to do that. The point I'm making is this. Though we aren't Peter, evangelism, is a task given to the, to the church because it was a task given to the apostles and we rest on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. It's given to us then to spread God's word and to preach his message of salvation. We are now called, and, and even I love in our statement of faith, this is a call, this is a commission that extends to every believer. We're now called to throw out the net of the gospel to share the hope of the work of Christ, to become fishers of men. Thomas Boston said it this way, What an honorable thing it is to be fishers of men. How great an honor shouldest thou esteem it. Now there's some old English in here, just track with me though. How great an honor shouldest thou esteem it to be a catcher of souls. It's an honor. We should esteem this honor highly. We are workers together with God, says the apostle. If God has ever so honored thee, oh, that thou knewest it, that thou might bless his holy name, that ever made such a poor fool as thee to be a co-worker with him. God has owned thee to do good to those who were before caught. Oh, my soul, bless thou the Lord. Lord, what am I? Or what is my father's house that thou hast brought me to this? What a privilege to be in union with Christ and to receive all the benefits of the gospel, but also to be privileged and to proclaim the message of the gospel to those who need to hear it. We are invited in to be fishers of men. You see, God uses means to accomplish his will. And one of the means he uses to accomplish his will is the proclamation of his gospel through people like you and I. And here's some comfort for all of us. Here's the thing about fishing. Some days are better than others, and it's outside of your control. 
Some fishing days are better than others, and it's outside of your control. I used to take guys fly fishing all the time, and, and if, if, if the fish weren't biting, they would inevitably, they weren't, they didn't grow up fishing, they didn't know fishing, and they would inevitably say, man, we just must have the wrong bait. We must just be using the wrong technique, and I would say, no, it's, it, this is what it is. I, you can't make the fish bite if they're not hungry. They didn't realize that biting fish is outside of my ability to produce. And I'd say it's similar with our proclamation of the gospel. We proclaim Christ, but saving people is God's work, not ours. He draws, he regenerates, he justifies, he adopts, he forgives, he reconciles. All we do is proclaim the message and we leave the results in God's hands. Jesus is the one with knowledge. Jesus is the one with authority. Jesus is the one with power. So we throw out the nets and we leave the results to him. You know, just quickly, um, if you're wondering, man, where do I start? I, w- I want people to know Christ. Well, I'd say, one, pick, pick, pick someone and start praying. Pick someone and start praying for them. It's amazing. The Lord answers prayer, and he loves to answer that prayer. He delights in answering that prayer. Lord, give me a chance. Give me an opportunity. Open the door for me to share the gospel. Paul asked for that prayer. And two, I would encourage you to saturate your mind with the gospel of Jesus Christ, because when it's on the tip of your mind, it finds its way into conversations. So, Think about the gospel. Consider the gospel. Consider your own union with Christ, the own, your benefits that you've received through Jesus Christ, and it can find its way into conversations that you never would have thought of before. Evangelism, then, as we wrap up this passage, is part of a larger call. It's part of a larger call. It, 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 it's to faithfully follow Jesus. Peter, James, and John... Bring their boats in. And I love how verse 11 ends. They left everything and followed him. The fourth response is is discipleship. And by that I just mean following Jesus. The business is booming. They've never had a better day of gains in their entire career. Yet they abandon it all to follow Jesus. They have a new priority after Priority after being called by Christ. What we see then is in Luke, he hasn't left behind this theme of authority. We saw that Jesus has authority over disease. Jesus has authority over wicked angels. Jesus has authority in his own words. And now we see that Jesus has authority over people. Jesus has authority over Simon and James and John. Jesus has authority over you and I. So he bids them, come and to to follow me, and they leave everything at the authority of Jesus' command. C.S. Lewis called Jesus the transcendental interferer. He's been interfering with people's lives from the beginning. And what that means is if you or I claim to follow Jesus, but it hasn't cost us one thing. If you and I claim to follow Jesus, but it hasn't cost us anything, we're simply serving ourselves, and Jesus becomes the ends to the means of fulfilling what I wanted in the first place. 
But the disciples here, they leave everything and they follow Christ. You see, Jesus isn't necessarily calling all of us to, to quit our work, but to follow him in all of life, which certainly includes our work. We are called as, as followers of Christ to hold everything with an open hand. Everything is laid at Jesus' feet. It's all available to you, Jesus, to use as you see fit. My time, my rights, my safety, my pleasure, my comfort, my money, my entertainment, my goals, my dreams, my agenda, all laid at Jesus' feet. He deserves and demands our all. The reality is that Jesus not only has the authority to command this, but it's worth it. It's worth it to give it all up and to lay it at Jesus' feet. Jesus isn't some kind of dictator who wants to harm you for his good. He calls us to life and to joy and to real freedom. You see... For Peter and James and John, their whole value system was just flipped upside down because they'd seen the risen Christ. They'd seen that he is worthy. He is worth it. We value then when we come to Christ. We value Christ. We value his mission. We value his authority. We value his status. There would be one time in Peter's life where he would go back to fishing. In John 21, following the death of Christ, all seemed lost. You know what Peter says? I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. And he doesn't, he's not saying I need a day out on the water. He's saying I'm going back. I'm going back to my old life. And the other disciples said, you know what, Peter, we'll go with you because Jesus is, he, he's dead. So Peter goes back to his former life. And John 21 records an interesting detail. It's after another fishless night that Jesus shows up on the shore in the morning. And once again, he calls out and he tells Peter how to catch the fish. And he fills the nets. And John, he's, he's a little quicker than Peter. He remembers the scene. And he says, that's the Lord. It is the Lord. You know what Peter did when Peter heard those words? He jumped in the water. <laughs> and the text says he swam 100 yards. I wouldn't even be surprised if the boat beat Simon to the shore. But he jumps in, and Jesus gently restores him. And Peter sees afresh and anew that Jesus is worthy. He, he has been now resurrected from the grave. He is worthy. He is worth going all in for. He is worth giving it all up. He is worth falling down before him, confessing your sin and following him. He is worth proclaiming then to those who don't know him. He's worth it. He's worth it. Let's pray. Father, your word just astonishes us. May we respond then to your word in humble obedience. May you wipe the fear out of our hearts from sharing Christ. Will you 
snatch the idols out of our heart that we want to cling to, like success and comfort and our goals and dreams. Father, without your spirit working in us, we have no hope to be obedient to the task. Father, would you glorify yourself through your spirit as we seek to make much of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.